Tonight, we have a special honor. I tell you, you're going to be, you're going to walk away so enriched and fed because tonight is sort of a, a different, you know, when you have a meal structure for a fellowship, um, you have different flavors. And tonight, I think, is just going to bless your heart and challenge your mind. And uh, so we're going to talk about Sodom. You know, I had heard a story of a, of a lady who was in church and the pastor had talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and she went up to him afterwards and she said, you know, I'm telling you, that was the best sermon. I tell you, your knowledge on the Bible just astounds me. I walk away knowing so much. For years, I thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Okay, that was... I wondered if I should do it. Now, tomorrow, no, we won't do it. All right. Well, anyway, we have... You know, if you know all the times that I talk about Greek and all the boring uh, sentence diagrams and so forth, there's a person to blame. And uh, that's my teacher, my instructor, and I'm so happy and honored to uh, introduce him. He is um, president of Trinity Southwest University. Would you please welcome Dr. Stephen Collins? Well, it's so good to be here tonight. I wish I had a lot of time, but we don't have a lot of time. We're going to take up as much of the time as we have showing some slides and talking about a subject that uh, has become rather dear to our heart, and that is the search for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, why in the world would you want to look for Sodom and Gomorrah? Turn to that uninspired section at the back of your Bible. That's that map section. You have a map section in the back of your Bible? Now, if you'll look around the Dead Sea, which is generally where Sodom and Gomorrah should be located, if you look around the Dead Sea on your Bible maps, you will find that Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, the infamous cities of the plain, these evil sin cities that are so famous from the book of Genesis, are not on your map. Now, I think I've run across one or two people in the last six months who have actually had Sodom and Gomorrah on their Bible maps, but they were there with a question mark, not actually uh, with any kind of confidence. Now, isn't it interesting, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 13 in just a few minutes, so if you'll get your Bible ready uh, with Genesis 13, we're going to look at that, but there is more geographical data embedded in the text of Genesis 13 for Sodom than there is for just about any other city in the Old Testament. Now, you can look at those maps, and there are Old Testament cities all over the place. But it's interesting that there's so much data about the location of Sodom and Gomorrah, yet nobody's willing to put it on the map. Do you find that a little interesting? Now, that's part of the the problem. Uh, A few years ago, I lead uh, quite a few uh, tours to the Holy Land, and I was taking some people to a site several years ago that is the traditional site of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, this particular site is located toward the southern end of the Dead Sea. I've had several of my friends write articles about it, and uh, it is probably uh, the most uh, talked about site relative to the city of Sodom. But uh, the night before I went there, I just turned to the Bible, and I always tell people, you know, if you want to know what the Bible says, you know, it's real easy. Just read it. And I turned over to Genesis chapters 13 through 19, which gives us all the info on Sodom and Gomorrah, and I read through it just to kind of brush up. 
because I was going to be taking some folks there the next day. And when I read through the text and I got to the end of it, I said to myself, you know, I didn't see anything in there that would remotely locate Sodom and Gomorrah toward the south end of the Dead Sea as it's traditionally done. And so I read it again and again and again. I read it four times that night and at the end I thought, you know, not only is there no information in there that would locate Sodom toward the south end of the Dead Sea, but everything in there would locate it north of the Dead Sea. But we were right in the middle of excavating I, the site that Joshua destroyed after, uh, after Jericho, and we, had, we were just started into that project. We had about four or five years to go on, and I said, someday I am going to come back and try to figure this thing out because it's just bugging the life out of me. Now, at that time, it was only for the reason that I hate taking people to inauthentic sites. I didn't want to be taking people down to a site that people said was Sodom, and it wasn't. And so it just really got me going. So I just put it on hold, and after we completed our excavation of I in the year 2000, I sat down, finally with some time on my hands to research this thing, and started looking at the question of the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's one thing. It was just an intriguing thing. If these cities really existed and God destroyed them, we ought to be able to find them, and we ought to be able to see how they were destroyed and when they were destroyed, and we ought to be able to look at them. That was just pure interest on my part. But there's another issue. There's another issue here that's very, very important, and this is the one I really want to drive home tonight. We live in a world where many, many people, most scholars, most archaeologists and historians, so many of my archaeologists' colleagues in the field do not believe that the patriarchal narratives of Genesis are factual. They believe that they are legend or myth or out-and-out fiction. This is the world we live in. People don't take the biblical text seriously. And this is a problem for America because to the degree that our nation does not take this book seriously, to that degree we depart from the moral foundation and the ethical foundation laid in Scripture. To the degree that we don't take this book seriously, to that degree our nation crumbles around us. So there are a couple of things going on here. We'd like to know where Sodom and Gomorrah is just for the sheer fact that we want to know. But the other issue is this. People are literally laughing in the halls of academia when you mention the historicity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they believe they are fiction. But if we could discover the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and actually prove through scientific excavation that they really do exist, this would be a huge blow to the critics of the Bible. This would prove, if we could find them, it would prove that the historical and geographical outline of the book of Genesis of the patriarchal narratives is indeed factual, not fictitious. Now, let's talk about these cities. And I want you to keep your Bible there because if you want to find the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we just got to go to the text. 
So grab your Bible and let's look at it. So we have a couple of things going. People doubt that the biblical stories of Sodom and Gomorrah are true. They doubt that the cities even existed. They doubt that they were destroyed by God or at all. And most people locate them toward the south end of the Dead Sea. But the Bible makes it really clear that they were located north of the Dead Sea on the east side of the Jordan River. And I want to take you to a map. Now, I'm going to put my Bible aside here because I've done this so many times. I think I almost have this this passage memorized. So I'm just going to talk through the passage with you. In the book of Genesis, Lot... And Abraham, you remember the story, get crossways with each other. Uh, they, are, they are nomads. They have flocks and herds, and they had too many flocks, too many families, too many herds, and they decided to part ways. And so they came to each other, and they decided that if Abraham went one way, Lot would go the other, and vice versa. And so they decided to split ways. And... The Bible says that Lot then lifted up his eyes and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the Garden of God, like Egypt. And then Lot set out eastward and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Now, that's the nuts and bolts of the story. The question is, What does some of this terminology really mean? Now, on the map that we're looking at, we have the north end of the Dead Sea, if you see it there. And you see that I have given you a large circle on the north end of the Dead Sea called uh, the Kikar. Now, the Hebrew word Kikar is the word generally translated plain there in your text. It is the cities of the plain. Lot looked over and saw that the plain, the kikar of the Jordan was well watered. Now, the question is, and let me show it to you. Whoops, got to go the right way. There it is. This is the well watered kikar, the well watered disc north of the Jordan River, or north of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River. Now, the word kikar is interesting because it means, in the Old Testament, mostly a talent of silver, a talent of gold, or a loaf of bread. Now, a talent of silver or gold is a flat, circular disc of metal. A loaf of bread is like a tortilla. And so the word kikar could mean either that flat, circular disc of metal or a circular, flat loaf of bread And the region is called the Kikar because that area north of the Dead Sea, if I can go back to that slide, the area north of the Dead Sea is an almost perfectly circular alluvial floodplain that is there because annually the Jordan River overflows its banks and deposits its silt in a manner similar to the Nile in Egypt. And so, Lot looks over and sees that the plain of the Jordan is well watered. And the issue 
however, is where is Lot standing when he lifts up his eyes and sees that the kikar or the disc or circle of the Jordan River is well watered. Where is he standing? Well, if you go back in Genesis 13 to the beginning of it, it says that Abraham and Lot had come to the area of Bethel and Ai. I mentioned a few moments ago that a team of us excavated at Ai for six years, so we know where Bethel and Ai is. We hung out in that area, we hiked all over the area, and we certainly know exactly what you can see from the place of Ai. So here's Lot and Abraham in the vicinity of Bethel and Ai. And it says that Lot lifts up his eyes. Now, if you look, right here is Bethel and Ai. Just about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, you can see that here's Jericho down here on the Kikar itself. And here's this, this circular disc. Now, if Abraham or, and Isaac are standing, I'm sorry, Abraham and, and Lot are standing right here on the edge of the Jordan Hills, uh, of the Jordan Valley Hills, just overlooking this area above Jericho, what can he see? Well, look at it. This little dotted line gives you Lot's line of sight. So you can see, and we've stood here many times just to catch this view, you can actually look to the east from this point and you can just barely see the north end of the Dead Sea. On a good day, you can see the waters glistening, but you can see up into the throat of the Jordan Valley, but what you can see in its entirety is this magnificent disk that the Bible describes as the Kikar of the Jordan. So the key here is where is Lot standing when he lifts up his eyes? He's standing at Bethel and Ai. Here's another view of it. By the way, this is from the top of our excavation site, and you can see that all around our site today are banana plantations. I doubt if they had banana plantations back in the time of Abraham. Now, here's another, here's another little map. Now, when we first set out to decide where Sodom and Gomorrah ought to be located, we simply read the text. And the text is very clear. It's north of the Dead Sea, visible from Bethel and I, and it's watered like Eden, lots of groundwater in rivers, and like Egypt. Egypt was watered by the annual inundation of the Nile, and the Jordan is the Nile in miniature. And so this is the area that's being talked about in Genesis 13. But when we first drew our map about where Sodom and Gomorrah ought to be located, we completely had a blank. It was just simply a blank map with some theoretical sites on it because all of the archaeological literature we could put our hands on, mainly from Israeli and American sources, had absolutely nothing on this eastern side of the Jordan River. But yet when we got on a plane and actually went to the area and began to do some ground research, not only at the Acor Library in Amman, but also walking around the area and looking at all the potential archaeological sites in the region, we found that there were 14 of them, and this map has them all. Of interest to us, though, were not just simply all the sites on the eastern Kikar. What we wanted to zoom in on were sites from the 
Bronze Age. In, in particular, the Middle Bronze Age. Now, why the Middle Bronze Age? Because Abraham and Lot lived during the Middle Bronze Age. There are, there are no arguments about that. Everybody recognizes that the Bronze Age, that's the period from about 2000 B.C. down to about 1600 B.C., that's the period in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, are living. So, if we're going to find Sodom, it not only has to be in the right place, but it has to be in the right time frame. We have to find a Middle Bronze Age city, or a set of Middle Bronze Age cities. If they're just early Bronze Age... Hundreds of years before Abraham, it doesn't do us any good. And by the way, let me insert here that all of the southern Dead Sea sites, Babadra, Numera, all of them, were destroyed during the early Bronze Age, hundreds of years before Abraham was ever born. Now that kills them all to me. Okay, They're in the wrong place, but they're also in the wrong time frame. So we need a city north of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River, and we need them to be Middle Bronze Age. So on this map, see if I can point to them here, we have, interestingly enough, two little groups. Here's a one, two, three group. This group right here are all dating to the Middle Bronze Age, we come to discover. And this little group doublet right here, six and eight, are also dating to the Middle Bronze Age. And they are the only, those five cities are the only Middle Bronze Age cities amongst this group of 14. So by process of elimination chronologically, what we've done is simply to take the cities that fit the time of Abraham and Lot and they become our candidates for Sodom and Gomorrah because they are in precisely the right place. Now, a lot of people ask me, why didn't anybody see this before? Didn't anybody go down there and look in this area? Well, you can see that the area is rather close to the Jordan River, and this is the border between Israel and Jordan. This area for the longest time, for decades, was off-limits. It was controlled by the military. Most of these archaeological sites were inaccessible. In fact, the site that we're excavating, the site we think is Sodom, was actually overlaid with landmines over part of it. And that makes it interesting. No, the landmines aren't there right now. But, um, you know, what, what the uh, military... Uh, didn't sweep away, I suppose, all the herds of sheep and goats that are there all the time took care of the rest. But um, uh, we have uh, identified then um, sites that are specifically Middle Bronze Age and uh, were never touched before because they were just, this particular site was off limits. And, um, but one of them was excavated. Number one, right here, was excavated, and I was very interested in its profile. Now, we didn't think this one was Sodom, because Sodom would be, logically, the largest. It's the only one that's mentioned by itself. Sodom is often mentioned alone. None of the others are ever mentioned alone. And when Sodom is mentioned with 
all of the other cities, it's always listed first. And so it's always got the preeminence amongst those cities. And so Sodom must be the largest one of all. The largest one is the site that we're excavating. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second largest one, which I think would be the city of Adma, uh, which is right here, was excavated, and it had a very interesting profile that kind of smacked me in the face when I read the, the excavation reports for this particular site. In a nutshell, the excavation of this site said that it was founded in the early Bronze Age, Remember, these cities go back to Genesis 10, which puts us back in an era earlier than Abraham and Lot. So we would want to have an earlier occupation. It was founded in the early Bronze Age, destroyed in the Middle Bronze Age during the time of Abraham, not rebuilt for over five centuries and when I saw that, it was pretty interesting because even, even the excavators made the comment that it was rather unusual for a city in a well-watered place like this to be destroyed and not rebuilt for so many centuries because there's plenty of water. Why would a city go out of existence in the Middle Bronze Age, and not be rebuilt, the area not be touched again for over 500 years. They suggested in their report that it was either due to sociopolitical factors or, and this is what really got my attention, or possibly an ecological disaster. And I think the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah would qualify generally as an ecological disaster. So, that seemed to work pretty well. Um, but the biggest one of all is this one uh, right here, number eight. And what's interesting, if you look at this configuration, it is the furthest east of all of these cities. And remember, the Bible says that Lot lifted up his eyes, looked, saw that the plain was well watered, and it says, then he went eastward and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. The language there seems to imply that Lot went as far east as he possibly could on the Kikar before it stopped and went up into the Transjordan Highlands so that the city of Sodom itself ought to be on the farthest eastern edge of this disk of the Jordan River Valley. All right. Welcome to Tal el Hamam. Tal El Hamam is a massive site. You can see it circled here in red. It looks like the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> we have this nice disc down to the lower left, this nice disc section. And um, it is five, that disc section is 500 meters in diameter. And you can actually walk the early Bronze Age city wall, which is almost four meters thick. Twelve to 15 feet in places. The rest of it gives us uh, another 500 meters so that the entire site of this magnificent Bronze Age city is a 1,000 meters, six-tenths of a mile from northeast to southwest. Isn't that fantastic? Look, isn't she pretty? 
Now, this is a 1974 aerial photograph, and you can see that across the top of it, there are lit, there is like a road going across the top, and little jut outs. Do you see those little black things? Those are abandoned tank placements, and they're all aiming toward guess where? Uh, now, the military messed up the top of our site. They just messed it up. They dug a big gouge, a big trench, about two to three meters deep, 350 meters long, all across the top of our upper tell. Now, the upper tell is this one. It's 100 feet above the surrounding plain. Let's just go look at it. You can see it off there in the distance. I think we can tighten up. There she is. That's the upper tell. And um, she's 100 feet high. And the lower tell is off to the left there. And it is a magnificent place. It's the largest Bronze Age city in the entire region. There's the lower tail. You can see the flattened part of it. And this is the early Bronze Age city. The upper tail consists of, well, we had to excavate it to find out. The The early city on the bottom is just kind of sticking out on the surface. Here we have our trench. You can see this gouged out trench. And it's pretty ugly. And most archaeologists will admit, though, even though you can't do it, you can't bring a bulldozer to an archaeological dig. Sometimes you'd like to have a bulldozer at an archaeological dig, but it's not protocol. But we had one come before we, before we ever got there, and it dug this big hole. And what's interesting is, as we clean up the debris from this big gouge, this big military trench, we can see amazing cross-sections It's like having x-ray vision of the site. And so uh, we've used that to our advantage. Now, as you walk up to the site, you can see some of our diggers here walking up uh, from the bus. And you can see this wonderful hump right here. And that's a pretty exciting hump. And some of you are going to help us excavate that next winter. By the way, that's Gomorrah off. 23-minute walk to the north. Tel Kafrin. And here we have a piece of that military gouge, that military trench that has just blasted through a major city wall. Do you see the meter stick here? This wall, which is Iron Age, is from here, from the outside here, to the, out, to the inside here, is a little over three meters. Now, the important thing about this is not the Iron Age wall, because the Iron Age, the remnants of the Iron Age wall is pretty superficial, just built right over a larger, magnificent mud brick structure. And here's this mud brick structure over which the Iron Age wall is built. This yellowish stuff down here, you can pick it up here, you can pick it up here. I think I've got a picture. Here I am pointing to this yellowish matrix, which is beaten earth and mud brick. And you can see the stones there. Now, just to the left of that picture where the military trench was, we actually excavated. Here's the three-meter-thick city wall from the Iron Age. And over it, or it is built over this mud brick stuff. But we didn't know it was mud brick on the day we were going to take this photograph. Look at this photograph. It looks just like beaten earth. And we're going to take the photograph, and about an 80-mile-an-hour swirling wind came along, and we closed our eyes, and we had sand stinging our faces and our skin, and we had uh, to just stop everything for a few minutes. But when the wind went away... 
Gary Byers, uh, my supervisor for this square, called me up. He said, you better come up here and look at this. And I popped up to the side of the square, about where we're standing to take this picture. And I looked down, and I was absolutely amazed. If you don't see it yet, you will. Let me show you. Do you see this line, this subtle line? See this subtle line? There's one there, there's one there, there's one there. What you're looking at that we couldn't see before the wind came. Our finest brushes couldn't, couldn't see it. But when the wind swirled around, what we could see were the fine seams between the mud bricks. So these are mud bricks, about a foot and a half by a foot. And what we were standing on top of, and we knew now that this Iron Age city wall was not built over just a pile of dirt and mud bricks. It was actually built over a huge monumental mud brick structure. And what that mud brick structure is, here's some more of it. Here's the mud brick. Here's the Iron Age city wall, but here's the mud brick underneath it. You can see it even protrudes up underneath the Iron Age wall. Here's some more of it. It goes down when you dig through it. It just keeps going. It's everywhere in this area. What is it? It's right on the edge of the tell. Tell, of course, is this big mound. It's right on the edge where the fortification systems are. What is that? In the Middle Bronze Age, gates to the cities were made of mud brick. If you've been to Tel Dan in Israel, you've seen the Middle Bronze Age. Everybody calls it Abraham's Gate, the arched gateway at Tel Dan. Well, guess what, folks? Uh, you're looking at an only partially excavated, uh, I think, Middle Bronze Age mud brick gateway. When we crack into this next season, we're going to spend seven weeks digging this thing out, and we think we've got this gate. Now, what would be really exciting about this is that if this is the Middle Bronze Age mud brick gate, and if it isn't, we'll find it somewhere else, but it's in exactly the right place where it should be. If this is it, this will be the first time in history that a specific architectural feature mentioned in the Old Testament has been discovered and excavated intact. It said, remember the scripture says, Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom. And if this is that gate, this is where Lot sat in the gateway. So that would be pretty exciting stuff. Some of our excavators... Now, this hole was a shot in the dark, and I'm going to go real fast through this. Just kind of watch it progress. We're digging, digging, digging. Oh, somebody did some work. We're about three meters down now, and here's what it looks like. But right down here, this is all Iron Age. As we come down, 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 we're all Iron Age, Iron Age, Iron Age. And all of a sudden, under the Iron Age, and this is everywhere on our site, Everywhere at Tel El Hamam, as soon as we get under the Iron Age, and by the way, Iron Age, that's going to put us about, uh, about 700-800 B.C., let's say some time of Solomon, let's put a biblical name to it. When, wherever we get under the Iron Age, we land immediately right on the Middle Bronze Age. We jump back 500 years. That 500-year gap exists at this site as well. It was built in the early Bronze Age, destroyed in the Middle Bronze Age in the time of Abraham, and not rebuilt for over 500 years. But right down here, this is all Middle Bronze Age stuff. This is Middle Bronze Age mud brick. And right here by our North Pointer sign, right here, we found something very interesting. We found this. 
Now, sometimes we find so much pottery that the diggers would like it to stop. We found crates and crates and crates of it. This is such an artifactually rich site. But this is one thing that we did find. And by the way, I always do this for drama. This is the bag that it went into at the site this winter. Just a few months ago, this was in the ground, and this piece of pottery hasn't seen the light, hadn't seen the light of day since the destruction of Sodom. But it, this is a weird one, and I want to show it to you. Now, you're looking at it on the screen, but this is the real deal in my hand. Now, what's interesting about it is it's a, it's a garden variety Middle Bronze Age storage jar fragment. It's just a shirt of pottery from a large storage jar. In fact, you can still, you can still see the wheeling lines and we can stance it. It actually fits right on the upper shoulder of this large storage jar. But the outside of this piece of pottery has an interesting feature. The surface of this pottery has been flash heated to such a high temperature that the surface of the clay itself is boiled into glass. Ancient people in the Bronze Age or in the Iron Age, people before about the 10th century A.D. did not glaze their pottery. That's why it really bugged me when I first saw it. I said, oh no, what's a piece of 10th century Arabic pottery doing down here three meters deep in this hole? But then we looked at it carefully. It's Middle Bronze Age, all right. But it's been heated to such a, flat, such a temperature at a flash that it didn't distort the pottery itself, it just melted the surface of it and you can even see the glass pouring over the edge of the break. We passed this up to the surface when we found it and our engineers who are uh, some of our volunteer diggers looked at it and immediately, here's what they said, they said, it looks like Trinitite. And I kind of thought I knew what that was, but I said, well, what is Trinitite? And they said, well, that's silica material like sand or stone that has been subjected to a nuclear blast. And they had experience with that, and one of them even had some on his mantle at home. And I had never seen any Trinitite. But when I got a sample of Trinitite and put it next to our shirt, I knew exactly what they were talking about. There's the clinker on the left. There's the shirt from Tal el-Hammam. This is Trinitite. Look at it. The inclusions are identical. The limestone meltout is identical. The lime meltout. The glass structure is the same. Now, this is so intriguing. Uh, we have a team of scientists from New Mexico Tech University that's going to saw this thing out and analyze it and discover exactly what kind of event has produced this. This is pretty interesting stuff. All we can say at this point is, is maybe we can ask a question. Could we be looking at the results of an event of the divine destruction of Sodom? And I think so. I think it's very, very intriguing that that indeed might be exactly what we're looking at. Well, let me run you through some more slides. It's fun to kind of look at the dig. Um, when you're excavating, sometimes you just want to find a, a seam of something. Do you see there's some stones there? Well, a couple days later, it looks like that. 
monumental buildings all over the site. This is a magnificent excavation site. That's some of our military trenching that we had to clean up. Once we cleaned it up and actually began to excavate it, it looks more like this. Again, monumental buildings popping out everywhere. By the way, um, if you have a city built of mud brick and you destroy it or you heat it up with flames from heaven, what would happen to the mud brick? Now, people living in New York wouldn't get this, but we in New Mexico would get this. What happens when you heat mud brick up? gets better. Okay? So the, the, the destruction of the city itself might have been a way to preserve it. And look at this. Right between some of, this Iron Age, uh, some of these Iron Age walls, we have mud bricks plastered on the surface, and all of this is from the Middle Bronze Age, from the time of Abraham. So we're starting to see some features. Uh, just some fun digging. There's one of our skeletons. I don't have time to talk about Sodom Sam 1. One of our diggers, you got to name them. I mean, they, you know, here's Sodom Sam 2. <laughs> here's some of the pottery. Cypro-Phoenician pottery, wonderful stuff. This is a very wealthy city. Here's a mud brick. You see the fingerprints on the top right there? There's some thumbprints. I mean, the guy put it in the mold, did this to it. The guy that, this is a Middle Bronze Age mud brick. The guy that gave us these fingerprints probably, isn't it interesting to think that he probably died in the destruction of Sodom? Kind of interesting. Alabaster, wonderful Egyptian alabaster. Bracelet of glass. Pottery. More pottery. Painted jar. And every day when we go home at night, we get the view of the Dead Sea. Now let me wrap this up. This is all kind of fun and interesting. But there is a point to it. I want to make one brief statement, and I want you to see if you can capture the the power of this. Higher critical theory in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, was beginning to cause people to doubt that Moses even wrote the Pentateuch and that the Bible was was really anything like the Word of God. And when the church realized that this was happening, they ignored it. They kept sending missionaries all around the world, but they ignored what was happening right under their own nose in England and in, 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 in Europe. To make a long story short, 50 years later, historians declared that Europe was post-Christian Europe. Why? Because they didn't contend for the faith at home. Jude 3. They didn't earnestly contend for the faith. We must earnestly contend for the faith. And how do we do that in this world? We do it in one way by authenticating the scriptures. Archaeology, the science of archaeology can help authenticate scriptures that are doubted and even laughed at by the world. If we can discover that Sodom not only existed in exactly the place that God said it was in in, in the Bible and was destroyed at the right time and in a manner commensurate with how the Bible says it was destroyed, what does this do? It says that this event is true. It also has a powerful message for the world because as you go on in in Jude, it also mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact is, is that Don't mess with God. God will judge 
And this could very well be proof of that. It's interesting that this would come about at this time in history. Now, I'm going to close. I'm going to ask Pastor Dave to come up. You have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. No, let me change that. We have a once-in-history opportunity right now in this excavation project to demonstrate the the historical authenticity and accuracy of Scripture. And excavation isn't cheap. We need your help. We need your strong back. I'm going to close and I'm going to ask Pastor Dave to come and close for us. God bless you. Sodom does exist, folks. We need your help to continue the excavation to help us prove it.